We spent the last episode of I'd Rather Be Reading in the 1960s and 1970s with George Harrison and the Beatles, and now we're planning our feet in the 1970s for today's episode to talk about what that decade meant to sports. The author of today's book, The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America, is Michael McCambridge, who writes, so much of what we take for granted about sports today either began or reached critical mass in the 70s. An example, you ask, women in sports in Title IX, the integration of sports, sports on primetime television, athletes taking over ownership of their careers, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. Michael and I dig into all of it in today's episode, and I would love the chance to tell you a little about him. He grew up in the same part of the country that I did, the greater Kansas City area. Don't worry, listeners, we definitely address the Taylor Swift infiltration of Kansas City at the end of the episode. He is an author, a journalist, and a well-known television commentator. He has written nearly 10 books, including the extremely acclaimed America's Game, the epic story of how pro football captured a nation, and 69 Chiefs, a team, a season, and the birth of modern Kansas City, which chronicles the Kansas City Chiefs' 1969 Super Bowl championship season. It is such an interesting conversation with someone who knows what they're talking about. Take a listen. Michael, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. So I'm going to start with a brain buster right off the top. Don't always do this, but it's not too hard, I promise. So if you could describe the 1970s in sports in three adjectives, what would they be? Unkempt. Mm. Complicated. Mm -hmm. Drunk. (laughs) <laughs> okay, why drunk? Um, just because there there were things that were tried during the 1970s in sports that just make no sense in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was this sense of anything is possible. And mm-hmm. because there was that sense that anything was possible, you know, let's start a co-ed volleyball league. <laughs> or, you know, we have this team in Colorado in our soccer league named the Caribou. And because we're going to go go lean in to a leather fringe on the players' jerseys, even though leather fringe on the jersey seems like a good idea. So there were a lot of things like that that just just make no sense in retrospect, but that were were tried and tried again during the seventies. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to start with the opening of the book. It opens with the Battle of the Sexes, which is pretty famous in sports lore. It's, uh, listeners, if you're not aware, it's a matchup between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs tennis. You write that this would have been inconceivable a decade earlier or a decade later. I could see the earlier, but why, why later? Why so? I think because by the time we get to the 80s, Americans can accept females as athletes. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that a Chris Everett or a Martina Navratilova or a Billie Jean King is an elite athlete, isn't something that was commonly doubted. Mm. But at the beginning of the 70s, it still was. And there was this, as you're well aware, there was this real pushback against women seeking equality in pay, in in circumstances, in opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so kind of the, the resident 
sports male chauvinist pig at the time was Bobby Riggs. Mm -hmm. And he spent so much time saying that women weren't really athletes, that they belonged in the bedroom and the kitchen in that order. And Billie Jean King, Billie Jean King knew she had to beat him to shut him up. And she also knew going into that match that if she lost the rest of her career, never mind how many Grand Slam tournaments she'd won, never mind what a trailblazer she'd been for women's tennis, but women's sports as a whole, her entire career was going to be judged on that one loss, mm-hmm. just as subsequently Riggs is remembered for what? Losing to Billie Jean King. But I think that the added pressure that Billie Jean faced was that the entire apparatus of women's sports was fairly or unfairly, and it certainly would have been unfair, was going to be judged by the result of that match. I can't think of any athlete who's entered a contest under more pressure than Billie Jean King entered the Battle of the Sexes. Mm -hmm. And she performed marvelously and, and won. And I write later in the book about how much that meant to so many people not just women, but also some men, so many people in in terms of opportunity and recognition and just making room for women in sports. Yeah. Let's stay on Billie Jean King for a moment. And by the way, like you said, no pressure, right? Like you just got the entire, like every woman in the world on your back, Billie Jean King, but she, she did it. She won. So you write of her, what she may not have fully understood in that moment is the women's movement and sports in America would never be the same. So I think that's a good place to kick off this conversation about women in sports in this decade. So in the 1970s, Title IX happened. So I can't imagine a listener not knowing what Title IX is because it's so ubiquitous. But if they, if for a listener that might not be familiar, what is Title IX and what doors did it open? Title IX was uh, um, part of the education of 72. Uh, basically a 37 word clause that that outlawed sexual bias in in the the woman who fought so hard for it bunny sandler as well as the sponsors in congress didn't really have a sense that it was going to affect sports they were dealing with you know quotas in medical schools and law schools that were keeping women out a lot of the same things that ruth bader ginsburg encountered at the beginning of her career um it was primarily um, designed to address inequities in in faculty hiring and faculty salaries at colleges. But um, the government, health education and welfare, defined that law as broadly as possible, which is which was what the government would do um, with laws designed to outlaw bias. And so, by the end of 73, year and a half after the law was put in place, it was becoming clear that the government was going this law to apply to college athletics. That caused a deal of consternation on the part of athletic directors. At the beginning of the 70s, the athletic budget at the University of Michigan was $1 million for men's athletics mm-hmm. and $0 for women's athletics. Wow. So the 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 hysteria that went on in the face of Title IX had to do with athletic directors fearing that either they were going to have to double their budget or worse still in their mind, 
cut it in half and share it with the women. Now, Title IX wasn't that kind of quota system ultimately, but it did it did eventually insist that that academic institutions and so that didn't just change sports, that changed American society as a whole. What else moved the needle for women in sports in this decade? Obviously, Title IX did, but what else moved the needle forward? I think that in looking at that period in American history, the factor that is often forgotten or underrepresented is the work of the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, AIAW, mm -hmm. which was the Women's Athletic Governance Organization that was, um, they'd sort of talked about it in the late 60s, formed it in 1971, after the NCAA declined to sanction any women's championship events. And the AIAW was, was a way for women to get involved in athletics in college, but they were, they were striving for a less commercial, less exploitative athletic experience. Originally, there were no scholarships that were going to be offered, but oddly enough, um, a lawsuit filed um, citing Title IX forced AIAW to open that up and, and offer scholarships. But through the 70s, what you see is in this parallel organization to the NCAA, the beginning of an infrastructure for women's sports, women's championships in seven different sports, the beginning of, of athletic scholarships, women having the opportunity to be athletic administrators, coaches. All the while, the NCAA is fighting Title IX and trying to get an exception to Title IX for football and basketball, that those scholarships wouldn't be counted when you were calculating um, what colleges needed to do for women's athletics. And, it, and we had this just decade-long struggle with women trying to assert themselves in sports and get their spot at the table, mm -hmm. which they ultimately won. But it was it was a messy, complicated, conflict-ridden decade um, as women were trying to assert themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not just winning the battle of the sexes, but lobbying for Title IX, lobbying for equal opportunity for women. Billie Jean King was hugely influential in the way that decade progressed. Well, you write that Americans still find it difficult to take the 70s seriously. I'm wondering why this is so, especially when there were so much happening in that decade? Well, you know, I think that um, we have to divide, we have to divide things up between one hand and the culture as a whole on the other. And you're well aware of the reputation that the 70s has mm -hmm. as a culture. Uh, there was a history of the 70s, uh, the title of which was, it seemed like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at the if you look at the decade's reputation writ large, there is this sense of, as Jimmy Carter described it, malaise, mm -hmm. this sort of unhinged quality to the decade. Um, we remember the decade for the end of the Vietnam War, the demise of Richard Nixon because of the Watergate scandal, Jimmy Carter's earnest but ultimately unsuccessful term as president. Mm -hmm. And I think that sports is often conflated with that but when I started doing research for this book, it became apparent to me that 
This was a pivotal, decisive decade in American sports. So many things changed. Um, sports moved to primetime network television in the 70s, mm -hmm. thanks mm -hmm. to Monday Night Football. Um, athletes began to experience their own emancipation through free agency in the 70s. Integration became much more the rule than the exception in sports in the 70s, in a very real sense, leading the way for the culture at large. And then, as, as we've discussed, the biggest change might have been the degree that women became involved in unprecedented, unimagined numbers in the 70s as athletes, as coaches, as administrators, as journalists. Um, and all of that happened in the course of that one decade. Every decade brings change, but the 70s was decisive. Mm -hmm. I think by the end of the 70s, you could begin to see the broad contour of what sports would become today, which is in a very real sense, the last big tent in American popular culture. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, we don't live in that three network age anymore. We've mm -hmm. now got 200 channels and infinite number of um, alternatives in streaming and the internet, but there's still a hundred million people that watch the Super Bowl. Right, exactly. Well, within sports, you write, there was a confluence of events that were pivotal and transformative and that no decade in American sports history featured such convulsive, conclusive change as the 1970s. And you also write that so much we take for granted about sports today either began or reached critical mass in the 70s. So that said, there's so many changes. I mean, my gosh, the book is 500 plus pages of, of changes that are happening in sports in the 1970s. So which- Now, Rachel, don't scare people. It, the last <laughs> no, but it's pages. a good 500 pages. I just told you before we started recording that I read this book essentially in one sitting. It, the, it's some of the best writing that I've read. And I read a lot of books, Michael, and this is some of the best writing I've read in, in a long time. And so- Thank you. Thank so, you. So don't you be, and thank you. Yeah. The last yeah, hundred I mean pages that. are source notes, to be fair, but go ahead. <laughs> True. You can knock off easily about maybe 75 pages for source notes. So there you go. But don't let the number intimidate. I mean, I love a good, big, long book like that. But anyway, yeah. that said, which change stands out to you out of all of them? And there's so many as the absolute most transformative. Would it be Title IX? I think it's the change in women's sports. And we can mm -hmm. see that today. You know, the, the, the massive interest in the Women's World Cup this past summer. Yeah, America. yeah. Even though, you know, for the American audience, all the matches seem to be starting at ridiculous o'clock. Um, <laughs> you know, the way that uh, the way that Iowa's Caitlin Clark became the sensation yeah, of March yeah. Madness. Mm -hmm. um, and just this past September, Coco Goff winning the women's singles at the U.S. Open got a higher Nielsen rating than the men's singles final the next day. So I think when you put those things into perspective, you you can make a case that the way sports looks today is a direct result of all the changes that happened in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought this up just a minute ago. I want to talk about bringing sports to primetime television on network TV. Monday Night Football, as you said, debuted this decade. I was born in 1986, so I have never known life without sports on primetime. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, I, this, it's, it's been a while since I've felt young, Michael, so thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, but why, <laughs> why did this shift happen? And, and how had it not happened sooner? Because television had been 
in Advent for what, 20 years-ish by this point. So how had this not happened before? I think it hadn't happened before because the conventional wisdom, certainly among the networks, certainly among advertisers, was that football in particular and sports in general was still too male, too marginal, too parochial to succeed on prime time. And you have to understand that primetime audience with just three networks was the largest mass audience in American culture. Mm -hmm. And it was primarily female. It was a majority female audience. So when Pete Rozelle, the commissioner of the NFL, went around to the networks in 69 and said, I want to begin in 1970, this series of Monday night primetime games on network TV, CBS, which was the leader at the time, just kind of laughed it out of hand. They weren't going to change their, their blockbuster Monday night lineup. NBC, oddly enough, did not want the package because they knew they'd, they'd run a couple games in the past few years, and both times they'd, they'd caused the Johnny Carson Tonight Show to start late, and it pissed Carson off, and they did not want to upset their biggest commodity because at that time, The Tonight Show was taped live in New York. And Johnny didn't want to go on at, you know, 1145 or midnight when he was used to going on at 1130. So then it wound up at ABC and ABC was initially reluctant, but they took the package and the great secret weapon that ABC had, not so secret by the end of the 70s, was the producer Rune Arledge, who mm -hmm. presented sports in a way different than it had been presented before and recognized that he wasn't just going to be dealing with diehard football fans, but that Monday Night Football was going to have to appeal to a broader audience, more female, more casual fans. Mm -hmm. And so what Arledge did, just besides the technological stuff, which was the close-ups and the, the additional cameras, he put more personality in the booth. So you had Howard Cosell and Don Meredith, and a year later, Frank Gifford. And he also played up the dramatic aspects played up the narrative conflict resolution, the idea that this football game isn't just a football game that's standing alone. It's part of this serial drama, this epic serial drama of a season of all these careers. And sports hadn't been covered that way before, but with Arledge and Monday Night Football, that became the new norm. And the success of Monday Night Football opened the door the World Series had its first primetime game a year later. In 72, the Olympics start running every night in primetime for two weeks. Mm -hmm. 73, the NCAA Men's National Championship basketball game went to primetime. And I, I think it's clear that Monday Night Football um, opened the door for sports to move to a more central role in American popular culture. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you were born, it's, you know, all the big sports events are in prime time, most of right. them on network TV. Right, exactly. I mean, I can't, I can't remember a, a life without, without sports on all the time, because especially at my grandparents' house, my grandfather, I mean, sports were on all, that's how I became such a sports fan is because mm -hmm. it was just never not there. And I, it's hard right. to imagine it not being on every single night. And so this decade also represented the dawn of free agency and athletes gaining a sense of autonomy for their own careers. So how did this change the game, literally and figuratively? Well, it, it changed the game because it 
paved the way for athletes to no longer be indentured servants. Uh -huh. um, a lot of even the best athletes at the beginning of the 70s still had to work jobs in the off season to make ends meet. But suddenly um, you begin to see the true value of athletes. You begin to see athletes as a form of entertainers uh, because they're generating these massive amounts of revenue, largely through television. And because of that, it begins to seem more and more sketchy when owners are saying, oh, we can barely make ends meet, even though we're making millions in TV, in addition to selling all these tickets. And I think that, you know, that free agency came first in baseball. Mm -hmm. And it was probably inevitable that it would become first in baseball because baseball had the strongest players association. And, um, and so free agency came to baseball first. But I think the first real wake-up call in terms of athletes' value was the 1971 heavyweight championship boxing match between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. um, Ali, of course, had been stripped of his title when he declined induction in the army. Um, and he was basically barred from boxing for three and a half years. But he came back in 1970, earned this um, championship fight in 1971. First time ever that you had two undefeated heavyweights um, vying for the title. And both men earned two and a half million dollars. This is in 1971. Um, as the saying goes, back when two and a half million dollars was a great deal of money. Right, right. But even with that, even with that huge payday, the promoters of that fight still made a lot of money. And it was clear that that sports audience was broader than had reason than had earlier been thought, and that athletes were generating a huge amount of revenue in baseball, in football, in boxing, in tennis, in golf. And that opened the doors for athletes to um, assert themselves and say, we, we deserve more, which, mm -hmm. which they did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I want to also talk about integration in the 1970s, because as you write in the book, it became more the rule than the exception, which of course is great. So how did, how did race play into this decade in sports? I, I think you can see the, the sort of handoff from sports past to, for, to sports future in, in the first couple of weeks of the decade. On New Year's Day, 1970, Texas wins the Cotton Bowl over Notre Dame. They win the mythical national championship. And that is the last national champion in college football that was all white. There were no African-American players on that Texas team that won the national title. 10 days later, you see the future. Um, it's the fourth Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs against the Minnesota Vikings. Both teams were integrated. The Chiefs were the first team in pro football history that had a majority of starters who were African-American. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of that was sort of the beginning of the more comprehensive integration of sports. Um, it happened in football. It happened in basketball. It happened in baseball. Um, and I think it it showed the progress that had been made in sports. Now, certainly sports was still not a perfect meritocracy mm -hmm. as uh, anyone who studied the history of black quarterbacks can attest. 
Um, but it was beginning to be more of a meritocracy than American society as a whole. There was more opportunity for black athletes and eventually black coaches in sports um, than there were for say black executives in advertising mm -hmm. or black executives in business. Um, and so sports really led the way in that respect. And, and America was better for sports leading the way. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say that I read within the pages of your book, it was a bit jarring to read that in the 70s, O.J. Simpson was the most admired man in America. Times have certainly changed since. Um, not going to stay there and park there. We're, I'm going to move on. But I was just, I read that and I said, oh, okay. I mean, I knew that he was a great football player, but the most mm -hmm. admired man in America, that 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 actually makes what happened in the 90s just even make more sense about his fall from grace. But Anyway, so within sports in the decade, money just exploded. Sports became ridiculously profitable. So can you point to one reason why or how this happened? Was it the shift to prime time? What was, what was the reason why sports just became such a money-making machine? The shift to prime time was the most important because yeah. Yeah. then you're talking about, then you're talking about big money and the success in prime time, mm -hmm. continued success in prime time. And the way that, as CBS and NBC found, that even the games on Sunday, running from noon to six in the central time zone, one to seven in the eastern time zone, in the NFL, those games were so popular that they were a great lead-in to uh, a network's fall lineup. You know, one of the reasons that 60 Minutes is the longest-running show on television Mm -hmm. is for decades, its lead-in was Pat Summerall and the NFL Game of the Week on CBS. And, you know, the that ticking of the clock of the beginning of 60 Minutes mm -hmm. was, um, if you grew up in the 70s, was the sign that the weekend is about over and you probably need to do your homework. <laughs> I've read it's that somewhere. I saw that on social media, I think, yeah. It's back to school tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but, but that money... Um, you know, previously the owners could say, well, all we get is is the money from ticket sales and and it's hard to depend on and it doesn't bring in that much money. But now suddenly um, the, there was greater revenue from television, um, from the television package than there was from ticket sales. So there was more than twice as much money as had previously been there and athletes deserved and demanded their share. And eventually they got some semblance of that. Mm hmm. You know, I, when you sat down to ideate about what your next book was going to be, what drew you to want to write about this? Did you, uh, was it your own experience in the seventies? What was, what drew you to write about this topic? I think for me, it was, well, first of all, I have to, have to come clean. I think every sports fan thinks of the era where they discovered sports Yes, and that's in love true. with sports. That's true. As the best era for sports, and I would say that about music and maybe movies yeah, as well. Sure, and and so I was, you know, I was a nerd growing up who, you know, would try to get all the sports magazines I could, and then cut out the pictures and make my own headlines and write my own stories and make mm -hmm. my own sports magazine. So I had a very emotional connection to it. But, um, the the reputation of the decade was one of 
you know, long hair and low inhibitions. And that much was true. There's a great, uh, there's a great Twitter account called Super 70 Sports. Yes, is, I know that Twitter account well. well yeah, that's that's a great so Twitter account. And funny and, and, you know, shows baseball cards of guys with impossibly long hair or impossibly big afros. Mm-hmm. And 70s was definitely that. But as I thought more about it, and thought about all the things that changed in the 70s, it was clear that the decade, at least in sports, was so much more than that. And that was the story I set out to to tell. Well, the book is large and there's a lot of research that went into. I mean, we were not kidding. The source notes easily are 75 pages. So there's a lot of research that goes into a book of this caliber. What is the most interesting piece of research you gleaned for the books? The exact page count, by the way, is 496 pages. So it's not quite, you're like four shy of that big 500. So don't get intimidated listeners. But what is the most interesting piece of research that that you found? I actually was very interested to read in the book about something I'd never heard of called the sports phone. So listeners, <laughs> yes. you'll, have to, you'll have to read the book to find out what that is. But what what is what stands out as one of the most interesting pieces of research you found? Because you lived through the 70s. But as you unpacked it, what what did you learn that you just were fascinated by? Well, there were so many things in so many different areas. Um, I think one of the things that stood out to me was the way that the women who governed the AIAW, all the things they fought against, all the things they went through just because they loved sports. And, you know, I, I say this at the end of the book, the the irony of this whole thing, the irony of that decades long fight is that the people who were so protective of what sports was in 1970, they wanted sports to be big. They wanted sports to be transcendent. They wanted sports to be popular. And what they didn't see was that for sports to be all those things, it needed women. Right. It needed women spectators. It needed women athletes. Um, As the historian Catherine Jay put it, sports had become too important to exclude half the population. Mm-hmm. And so there's the scene where <laughs> um, one of the women who's president of the AIAW in the 70s gets a call from CBS, the CBS Sports Spectacular, which was CBS's answer to wide world of sports mm-hmm. and says, you know, we, we've seen what you guys have done. We would like to cover your championships. Well, this is a big deal. This is finally the attention that the AIAW has been wanting. And then the the executive goes on to say, um, what we wanna cover first is your your cheerleading championships, (laughs) which of course the AIAW didn't have. So it was a a very short conversation, but but (laughs) dealing with that sort of myopia, that sort of um, sexism that was so rampant at the time and persevering anyway, a lot of these women were heroes. And, and so that was that was the thing that kept drawing me in. It was the part of the story that I knew least myself. And mm-hmm. so it was uh, it was great to have that learning curve. Yeah, but absolutely. It, if I could add one other thing, Rachel, of course, of um, course. you know, you said most interesting things. I, I worked really hard to try to contextualize a lot of what went on in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And yet there were some things that went on that that still make no sense. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, there is a picture in one of Billie Jean King's autobiographies. She's written three now mm-hmm. um, that was taken 
shortly after the Battle of the Sexes, so late 73. And Billie Jean King is on a Hollywood soundstage dressed in what you could only describe as Little House on the Prairie frontier garb. Okay. So she's she's dressed like in Little House on the Prairie. Mm-hmm. She's dancing with the Penthouse Magazine editor, Bob Guccione Jr., mm-hmm. dancing with him on the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour. And I don't know what possible series of things would get those <laughs> people in that place, in that instance, but that was something that happened in the 70s that I still haven't figured out. But that was it was that kind of decade. The confluence of events that had to happen to get that photo made is very interesting um man it was it just broadly said was there ever or will there ever be a decade like the 70s in sports or otherwise no because we're too sophisticated now we're too smart um there were all sorts of leagues that were launched just basically with with zero market research zero business plans no pro forma just kind of on a wing and a prayer Mm -hmm. and um I don't want to say the decade was innocent because there was a lot that went on that was a long way from innocent, yeah. but I think it was, it was the last unself-conscious decade. There was not a lot of um, people calculating how is this going to play <laughs> in front of a larger audience, mm-hmm. and that's why it's it's so interesting and at times absurd now. So no, I don't think we're going to have a decade like the '70s anytime soon. Well, you write in the 70s, sports became the dominant American religion. Actually, I think that was you quoting. Joyce Carol Oates, yes. Yeah, Joyce Carol Oates said that. So after the 70s, as the decade closed, it was now possible, as the book says, to live a life steeped in sports. And again, I can't remember or imagine any other way where I can't go tonight and find something, some game to yep. watch, some match to watch. It, what ultimately, and you you touched on this in, in the last question, but what ultimately is the legacy of this decade on sports? Um, it is that sports is a essential part of American life. It is a universe unto itself that a lot of people myself included, and it sounds like yourself included, Mm -hmm. use as a prism through which to understand the larger world. I mean, you know, there had always been people who viewed the world from a purely geopolitical viewpoint. There's always been people who view the world through purely a financial viewpoint. But the 70s opened it up for a worldview that was shaped from sports, what was the success of Ted Lasso, but an example of that culmination of someone who views the world through the prism of sports, Yeah, who is in there every day giving his best mm-hmm. uh, and is testament to the lessons that can be learned in sports. I mean, there's endless lessons that can be learned yes. from sports. And I, I just, I don't, I can't put into words, and I'm a writer and I can't put into words how this book captivated me so much just the writing is great but and I was not alive in the 70s and to be honest with you the 70s is never the decade that I zoom in on as some as a decade that fascinates me I mean that would be probably the 90s for me which holds your theory up that the 90s I was born in 86 so the 90s was the decade I grew up in and so you know the 90s are to me what the 70s are to you but you know I just I've never really 
unpacked, definitely not from a sports perspective, the 70s. And it's so fascinating how everything that we, as you say in the book, take for granted today, it was was not so at one point. And, and so it's just, it's a great book. And my last question for you is, when readers close the book, like I did last night, what do you hope they leave having said about it? What do you hope they take away from the book? Um, I hope they understand that sports is more than a leisure pursuit. Yeah. And sports can be in a real sense. It, it has, it has to be um, the glue in a society, you know, um, we were talking earlier um, before we started recording about Kansas City. I'm going to ask you about that in a second, too. The, yeah. the example I often cite in, in Kansas City, and I, I grew up there, take three people who live in Kansas City now. Say one is a 17-year-old African-American student. One is a 39-year-old Latina woman who is a teacher. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a 58-year-old white businessman. Mm-hmm. They may not live in the same part of the city. They're not watching the same movies. They're certainly not listening to the same music. Mm-hmm. But every Sunday, they are somewhere in Kansas City right. cheering for the same team. And that is the common language that makes a city a city, a community a community. Mm-hmm. Um, the mayor of Kansas City, the past mayor of Kansas City, Emmanuel Cleaver, once said, without the Chiefs and the Royals, we're Omaha. We're Des Moines. <laughs> you know, I mean, which that's is- true. That's true. Which is, you hope it's not literally true, but you understand exactly what he means. What I was about to say, you know, yes, for Kansas City, but, you know, it's the same for New York City. I mean, although they've got two teams for the city, but, you know, you're you're a Yankees fan. And, like, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status or what part of Mm -hmm. the city you live. Like, you bond over that or insert any other city here. And New Orleans, I mean, St. Louis, insert any other city. It's so true. It's sports are such a uniter um, across generations, across race, across gender, across socioeconomic status. And it's so true. It's not just about sports. Like that's, that's what I am now. I'm, I'm on my soapbox now, but I, again, one of the best written books I've read lately, thorough and concise all at once quick aside, as we just have mentioned. So I'm from Topeka. What part of Kansas city are you from? Um, I spent a good deal of time in Raytown and yeah. then when I was in high school and moved to South Kansas city mm-hmm. um, when my mother bought a house. And so um, spent the last three years there going to Barstow at 115th and state line. The, okay. We're just getting really granular here, but yes. you're making my heart so happy right now. So when I was growing up, I was again, growing up in the nineties and we were chief season ticket holders. We even went to, um, training camp in river falls wisconsin for a while we really like jumped off the deep end for a minute i know you're a chiefs fan i this is a total non sequitur but i just want to know what just very high level what you make of all this taylor swift hullabaloo i certainly never imagined in my work as a senior celebrity and royals editor at a women's fashion magazine that i would be writing about arrowhead stadium so much but here we are any thoughts on this yeah i mean you know it's it reminded me this last few weeks, as as the Swifties have discovered the Chiefs, and some <laughs> so of random the, Michael, and some of the Chiefs fans have discovered the Swifties. Uh-huh. You know these two universes are coming together, and I have prior with Taylor Swift. I took my daughter to a Taylor to a couple Taylor Swift concerts over the years, and uh-huh. so and I respect and admire her music, 
And so it's it's been kind of delightful um, seeing this happen. Uh, obviously, love and respect Travis Kelsey right. and, and all he's done. Uh, the, the, the one thing that struck me was it seems like the team and the players on the team have been pretty cool about it, you know, mm-hmm. after, to the degree possible, taking it in stride mm-hmm. because there's a lot of, you know, celebrity fans of the Chiefs. And, and obviously this is a different order of magnitude, but but they've been okay. Meanwhile, the league and the networks are just losing their cool. They're just know, like right? spastic and it's, but it's kind of, it's kind of fun. Well, you know, it, and again, this is a total non sequitur to the book, but I feel like it had to be the Chiefs of this era, like the Super Bowl winning Chiefs. Like it would not yeah. have been the same if it were like the Chiefs of 10 years ago, for example. But right. I, or, I digress. Or, you know, if she was dating some random player on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right. it wouldn't have resonated in the same way as right now. And uh, a columnist in Dallas wrote this a week or two ago. The Chiefs have become America's team. They've become what Isn't the Dallas Cowboys used to be yeah it is all because of taylor swift and see any chiefs fan obviously knows kelsey i mean i've known who kelsey was forever and it's just it's very strange just to watch the world now know him because you know two separate worlds coming together yes yeah yeah and he's i mean he's an incredibly talented football player anyway i digress go chiefs and the book is called the big time how the 1970s transformed sports in america it is out right now michael what a delight thank you so much for being here today thank you so much for reading and really enjoyed the talk i can't reiterate enough that the writing in this book is second to none and i know that you'll enjoy this book listeners again it is called the big time how the 1970s transformed sports in america and it came out october 10th don't forget listeners that the amazon link to each book is linked in the show notes to make it easier for you to click and buy a book you feel compelled to read after listening to an episode We have a stacked deck as season eight rolls on. We are going from sports to fashion in our next episode. And then after that to movies and beauty, the Alec Murdoch trial, the 1990s in music, equality inside of marriage, and so much more. Stay tuned.